Welcome to Lobster Brain. Lobsters fight, and when they win, it changes the neurochemicals in their brain and in turn, the hierarchy of the lobster community. Each success makes the lobster more of a leader and it becomes a top lobster. But why are we telling you this? Because in this podcast, you'll learn about how success can influence your mindset, strengthen your beliefs, and change your thought processes. You'll also discover that it's both success and hard knocks that creates leaders, or as we'll be calling them, top lobsters. I'm Danny Donerkey. And I'm Lisa Morton. And in this episode, you're going to hear from a man who's had to fight for his place in society from a very young age, just like a top lobster. Tony Bellew is a former world champion boxer. One of his most famous fights was at his beloved Goodison Park when he won the WBC Cruiserweight title in 2016. And I say beloved because Tony's a massive Everton fan and that's how he and Danny met when Danny was Director of Medical Services there over 15 years ago. So, what impact did growing up in a tough part of Liverpool have on Tony's mindset when he was younger? What are the obstacles he's had to overcome to become a world champion? And what does success mean to him now that he's retired from boxing? You'll hear all this and much more in this interview. And at the end, you're going to hear about how you can apply some of Tony's learnings to your own life too. This is Lobster Brain. It's an honor to be here in this huge house with a great friend. And I met Tony many years ago now. And at the time it was at Everton and David Moyes was really strict. He's very strict. He ran a tight ship and he didn't let anyone into the training ground. And this one day I went into the first team dressing room, which was like sacred and nobody could go there. And I see this big guy there in the, in the ice bath. And I thought, who in the hell is that? And who let him in here? But he said something to me. I can't remember what, but it kind of disarmed me. And luckily I didn't challenge him. And I've, I've observed him over the years. Uh, luckily, I was at his fight at Goodison and I cried with emotion and I felt such pride and honor um, to know him. And I've watched his career and, you know, everything that he's done, it's just inspired me. Yeah, well, thank you for having me here because my whole family has been researching you for the past two weeks and we thank know you. lots about inside leg measurement, everything. So, um, and I've been inspired by your journey too and I'm really excited thank, to be here you. today, Tony. Thank you. My daughter said that I have to, the first question has got to be, she's intrigued about the fact that you said that when you retired that um, Tony died and that, that Anthony was who you are now. So she wanted to know what the difference is between those two people. It's a good question. Uh, I've always, whenever I'm in the four walls of me home and I'm around my kids and my wife, I'm always Anthony. Uh, to Rachel, I'm Anthony. To be mum and dad, I'm Anthony. To certain friends, I'm Anthony. Uh, and it's just a, it's not a role I play because when I was in the fighting world and when I was in that environment and in that circus, I have to be the horrible, nasty person who's ready to explode at any moment who's ready to defend themselves or ready to fight or ready to create a drama or create a uh, a controversial incident something that's going to get me out there so but I was never like that at home like for years I was misunderstood and hated by the boxing world I was outspoken I, w I would never hold back on anything so if I think something I'll say and I don't really care about the consequences I'll just open my mouth and, and stuff comes out 
It was only towards the back end of my career after winning a world title where people realised I am just a normal person and I am someone who literally lives for his family. I'm not some God-given athlete who's amazing at what he does. I'm just someone who was never willing to back down, never willing to give in. Uh, and someone who believed in his dreams and went all the way. So that was the difference between Tony and Anthony. My dad's name was Tony. My dad was a a really hard, tough man. My dad ran Liverpool's nightlife uh, throughout the late 80s, early 90s into the millennium. And Liverpool's nightlife is, is very unlike many other nightlifes in the country. Uh, full of knives, guns... You name it, it's there. So, uh, my dad's been shot, stabbed, ran over twice, been in two comas, you name it. He's, he's been through it and seen it. So, I was a product of that uh, and I always wanted to impress him. So, the reason I named myself Tony was literally, my dad's called Tony and I was always known as Anthony as a child growing up. But as I got better in the box and I thought, this is the one thing my dad wants me to do. I'm off doing it just as much for him as I am for me. So, when I used to box as an amateur, I had Bellew Jr. on my shorts because, as I don't know, I was Tony Bellew Jr. So that's why the Tony was kind of created even as early as then. It was purely just to impress me, Dad. There's definitely a difference. When I'm Tony, I'm on guard. I'm always wary. <laughs> Anthony's just a big, relaxed dope. <laughs> I'm curious about... I've noticed today, and, and always, you're very humble, and you've said that you're not special. I'm curious about that. And, you know, the fact that you were world champion, you've done great things. So do you think that anyone is special? Or no. No. I do, no, that's wrong. I shouldn't say that because I do think lots of people are special. What a class as being special is people who can make a difference to other people's lives. I, do, I used to class every person who put on an Everton shirt and scored goals as special. That's down on that. <laughs> I used to class footballers. They're not. I put boxing gloves on and punch people in the face. I was really good at it. What I, doesn't, what I do does not define who I am and what anybody else does shouldn't define who they are. I look at people who make a difference in people's lives. So, Dan, you're really bright in what you do. You've made a difference to people's lives. That Now, that is someone special. Uh, Mother Teresa is someone special. Doctors, nurses, firemen. I'd say solicitors, but half of them are scumbags. <laughs> uh, I'd say politicians, every single one of them are scumbags. Uh, the, them, them people I've just said from the last, they are special people because they make a difference to people's lives. I don't class myself as... People look at me and they put me on a pedestal and they shouldn't because why should they? There's nothing I've done that they can't. The only difference between me and some people is they will not go to the lengths and, and show the amount of sacrifice and dedication I did. But there's nothing I've ever done that no one else can't do. Anyone. I was a fat kid, at 15 years old, expelled from school. I'm 15 stone. I had nothing. I was thrown out of school. I had no other way out. So I gave boxing everything I possibly had. Believed in myself. I was, I, I've had some of the lowest lows you could possibly imagine, but I've had some of the highest highs ever. I literally lived out my childhood dream. That night at Goodison Park when you was there, I lived out my child. That was my dream. That was my goal in life was to fight at Goodison Park for the WBC world title and win it. And I done it. So, yeah, that, that was my dream and, and I fulfilled it. So I've experienced the, the highest of highs that I could have possibly ever experienced. I mean, my wedding day uh, to my wife. I mean, it was the greatest <laughs> day of my life. <laughs> yeah, it was the greatest day of my life. And the birth of my first son <laughs> was... was just a, a, a life-changing moment, as all my children being born was, but 
I had the stream before my wife came along and I had the stream before my children came along to be a world champion at Goodison Park. And to see it through, I've literally seen my dreams unfold in front of my eyes. So, But for not for a single second, do I think that makes me special because every single footballer you see today on a football pitch, their dream is to play, probably play in the Premier League or play at the highest level, lift a certain trophy. Some of these players do it. Does that make them special? No, it doesn't. What it does make them, it makes them very hard working. It makes them very determined. It makes them brilliant athletes. But does it make them any better as a person? Absolutely not, no. I think what you've done and what you do does make you special because, and I agree with your point, not the fact that you were world champion, but the fact that you can share your story and you can inspire other people through what you've done. And, you know, the fact that you can say that you didn't have any special talent, but you made the most of it, that can inspire people. Yeah, I, I see that put side of things. It's like, I've been asked to talk in Cambridge and in Oxford and I rejected both of them. Uh, and the reason I've done it is because I feel much more comfortable going back to where I'm from and talking to them kids because I can relate to them. They're, 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 I'm, the, I'm, I'm the exact same as them kids and they feel dejected, they feel they've got no way out, they feel they've got nowhere to go. This is why I push my weapons down, gloves up initiative because I'm just trying to get kids into full-time employment. I've been where you are. I've been sitting there with, in a dead-end job. But behind that dead-end job, I had this goal and this dream of being this world champion boxer and that's... Every other job I had was to subsidise that dream of getting to that world title. Uh, but people in the likes of Cambridge and Oxford, what am I going to tell them? They're bright beyond measure. I can't teach them anything. But as I say, when I go back home, I can teach them people or anyone in and around my region. I can speak to them because I'm, I'm from the same place as them. And I'm from a tough place, which is really hard to get out of. But I've done it and I, and I got there. So I try and sit down and explain with these kids. This is why I love speaking to them now. I definitely feel like I can make a difference with them. But as I say, when it comes to going somewhere like Oxford and Cambridge, I, I don't belong in a place like that. You'd be surprised at how much you could teach those people. <laughs> yeah, I'll just... Yeah. Uh, my, my eldest Theo is at Cambridge and I would absolutely love yeah. for you to go there and speak to them, yeah. for him and his friends, because you could teach them so much. Mm. Yeah, but they, they probably... They probably know what's going to come out my mouth before I've even said it because there's so many far steps, that many far <laughs> steps ahead of me. But I don't know. Everyone's got something to offer. I just like to think that I can I can help certain individuals in certain situations to, to explain to them I've been through this and, mm. and this is how I got through it. This is what I've done. I definitely look at that side of thing and think I can help people. All as I'm trying to do is make a difference in these kids and, and the kids in this house. Their lives different and trying to help them progress through life and navigate their little way through their own little journeys. That's what I'm trying to do. And that's hard enough on its own with four boys. So for people who do it on a daily basis with hundreds of people now, they are really special. They're really brilliant people. I think I'd echo what Danny said though, that you know, the, the lessons that you can teach people from people observing what you've done and what you've come through. I mean, I was um, inspired by, you said as a young kid in, and uni mates or street corners of, of a, as the way out of, yeah. of that very rough um, community that you were in and, and you chose not to go down that route. Yeah. So, you know. Selling drugs was the only way out uh, as a kid. If you leave with no qualifications, you're not going to get a job because you've got no qualifications. Uh, employers, so you just constantly end up in dead-end jobs and, and where I grew up in, as I said, the lads who do, do well for themselves and the lads who do drive a BMW, the lads who do have a Rolex, the lads who have got nice clothes, every one of them sells drugs. And that's just the way I'm made. That, that's not me, you know, professional or telling tales. 
that's just life. That's the way it is. And that's how you find it in most neighbourhoods, like where I'm from, most areas, like where I'm from. So I'm from Wavertree, uh, Wavertree borders, Toxted, Wavertree borders, Allerton. So Allerton's a lovely area. Toxted isn't so nice, but I'm very proud of where I'm from. My mother still lives in the same place I was raised in now. I was born on Kingsley Road in Toxted and I was raised in Wavertree off Smithdown Road. Uh, and as I say, that place has produced its fair share of crazy criminals, but it's, it's produced even better share of lovely people as well. It's just very unfortunate that there's very few sportsmen. So within the area that I'm from, before I came along, there's not one single sportsman that I know that comes out of Wavertree, not one. And then after me, John Welsh, Terry Etham, Ross Barkley, we all live, we're all raised within 400 metres of each other. And it just so so it shows you the cycle of deprivation can't stop if we if we just keep progressing it and pushing it through the children of today. If you just get it over to them, listen, I was where you are. I lived in this road. If I can do it, you can. There's no reason at all why you can't do it. Like I said before, at 15 years old, I was 15 stone. I was a little chubby fat kid. I mean, in my mind, I'm always that little fat kid, but <laughs> I was a little blob who was going nowhere, no job. I say, ex permanently expelled from school for believe it or not, fighting. Uh, and yeah, there was no way out, but I, I persevered and believed in dream. And every single person in the area just thought, he talks nonsense him. He, he said he's going to be a world champion, he's going to be a fighter. He's gonna be. And I was like, okie doke, we'll see. And you keep spouting it, you keep saying it, you keep saying it. My wife talks about it now, it's called a word. Dan, you definitely know the word. <laughs> uh, the power of attraction. Like manifesting or... There you go, that's the word. See, Danny, I've got the word. Mani manifest <laughs> you probably taught it to me. Man manifestation. <laughs> if you keep manifesting it, it'll happen. Well, I was telling people at 15 years old I was going to be a world champion mm. and every single person labelled me a bullshitter and said he's not going to do it, not a chance. And every time I failed, whether I failed at British level, oh, he's just British standard, he's British level. Well, to be fair, I shouldn't say that because I never lost a fight at British title level. I've beaten everyone up quite easily at that level. Uh, at Commonwealth level, European level, each time. My only failures were at world level, but one of them was to, a, I don't think, a domestic level fighter. So people would say, he's not going to get above British level. He's not going to get above European level. And then he's never going to be a world champion. And each time you keep taking them off, people just keep going on and on. You have to f find your way through it and navigate it. And I did, thankfully, but I do understand how people can fall at the first hurdle because believe you me i was close to doing that a number of times myself it's very very tough to pick yourself back up and go again that is the hardest thing that a sportsman can do it, everything's great when you're winning it's hunky-dory you don't see what people are made of when when they're winning or at the highest of the highs you see what people are made of and at the lowest of the lows and that's when you really find out who you really are that's really interesting because i think it's in this amazing book, Everyone Has a Plan Until They Get Punched in the Face. And that title is just one of the best titles I've ever seen for a book. And you talk about when you're growing up, you know, you're in, a, in an environment where people would say, you know, you're filth. So you believe you're filth and that you're never going to do it surrounded by naysayers. And even in your clash with David Hay, Eddie Hearn didn't even back you to win. So even one, no. at that, so yeah, even at that level, you still, as you say, even at the top of your game, you're still... So how how do you do that? How do you dig into that? Because at that part of your life, you'd think everyone would be, would be completely giving you those accolades and the states that you might deserve. First of all, thank you for the book. Now, I didn't actually pick the name of the book. Uh, okay. And also, I wasn't the person who invented that saying. You did, Rachel. And, and, and <laughs> <laughs> she hasn't punched me in the face just yet. She's chased me. 
So everybody likes to think that Mike Tyson created the line of everyone's got a plan to get punched in the face. It wasn't actually Mike Tyson. Mike t took the phrase from someone else. The phrase comes from the great brown bomber, Joe Louis, and that's what he used to say. Everyone's got a plan until they get punched in the face. So, but Mike Tyson made it famous. Yeah, when Mike said it with that voice. <laughs> <laughs> Mike said it with that voice. It's, it's great, so... It's stuck, and I've had so much stick over the book. Uh, if I ever do an autobiography, it would be called Fail to Prepare, Prepare to Fail. I lived by that motto. It's tattooed on my arm. Uh, and that was the one thing that I lived by. If I fail anything, I've only got myself to blame because I failed to prepare. It's just something you've got to deal with and live with. As an amateur boxer, it's not too bad because you're part of a team. You go around the world, uh, and... You know, if you lose, you, well, you can't, I've expected to lose. When you're boxing the best Russian in the world, you're expected to get an absolute hide. And you come up against an American, you're expected to get beat. So fortunately for me, I kept winning. Uh, and then I'd lose to some really good fighters uh, from various countries around the world. And you've got to bounce back. But as an amateur, it doesn't really matter. It, there's no real emphasis on the results. It's about gaining experience because you're the best in, in the UK. You're going to face the best from Brazil. You're going to face the best from bloody hell, I've beat the... You, I've beat a Russian, I've beat an American, a Canadian, a Polish fighter, a Hungarian fighter. I've, so, I've faced all these different countries and I've been to all these different continents boxing. And I never really, I did take it seriously because I was so dedicated, but it was only until you go professional where it becomes a brutal, horrible business and you become a piece of meat. Uh, and then that's where you really have to believe in yourself. And as I say, the naysayers, the doubters, they're always going to be there. It's it's the same in life. I mean, it's not just in sport that this happens. I'm sure if you've gone for jobs or you've gone for others, you can't do that. Or you're not going to get the best out of him. One kid with weapons down, gloves up. We got him on board. And uh, his own mother said, you're wasting your time with him. He'll just mess this up and go again. And to be fair... He did mess up at one certain stage in the, in the camp, but now he's he's absolutely brilliant. He's got a full-time job with us. Uh, he's, he's producing and doing better than he's ever done before. He's got his own little place now. He's got a full-time job, great wage. And his own mother said, he's just going to mess it up on you. I don't know why you're wasting your time with him. And I thought, oh, what chance has that kid got if his mother is going to tell him he's a waste of time? I just thought. So... It, it's not just sport where you'll get the naysayers. It, it's in all walks of life, and we all have to deal with it at some point. How you how you deal with it is purely down to you. For me, I was I've always felt like it's me against the world, uh, and I've just I'm just never willing to give in or back down. It doesn't matter how many odds are stacked against me, how many people tell me I can't. I'll find a way. I don't know where that comes from. A friend of mine called Mark Scanlon. Mark's into the deep mental side of things, all this manifestation stuff and all the Lord of Attraction stuff. <laughs> Mark is really deep. And Mark said to me, we were going to see our friend the other day and he says to me, I know where your drive and desire comes from. And I said, how do you know where it comes from? He says to me, I've looked into the history of where you're from. I said, you must be nuts. He says to me, and I'm, I'm mixed race. My mum's black, my dad's white. But me, the black side of my family are Red Indians. And he said, the Red Indian in you, he says, they were a tribe that refused to back down no matter how many odds were stacked against them. And usually I would just shake this off and say, get a grip. But I thought, he half makes sense because I've never been able to give in anything and I can't back down. I mean, I can't even let my kids beat me on FIFA. <laughs> <laughs> it's embarrassing to be honest but yeah I just I can't lose I hate losing more than anything 
So yeah, and when he said that to me, I thought, oh, he's got a bit of a point there. I didn't tell him, by the way, and <laughs> he knows now. It's out there, but but I came home and thought about it and thought he's got half a point. Thinking about like manifestation and when you were 15 and you've got this idea that you're going to be world champion, where's that come from? Wanting to impress my dad. So my dad was, like I said before, I described him as being a really hard man. And my dad was, you know, toughest of the toughest. Would fight with absolutely anybody, but he couldn't stick to it with the boxing. He didn't have the discipline to stick with it. Whereas I did, because I once I'd do anything to succeed and I just wanted to impress him. Coming home to my dad with 10 GCSEs was never going to impress him. My dad left home at 10 years of age. He's a brilliant father. Just wasn't a very good husband, but that's a different story. I, I always wanted to impress him. And I knew if I would make something of myself in boxing, he, he would be like the proudest father in the world. Like I remember winning my first national title as an amateur. Like My dad told the whole world. And, and you know, you get a present off your dad or, or birthday comes, you get... You go out to that 15th and you get a nice, the brand new latest pair of trainees. Well, he bought me two pairs of trainees. He bought me three tracksuits that, that, and I was like, this is the way to impress him. And uh, and that's what I set out to do. Don't get me wrong, it's only when I got to the later stages when I'm then a man and, and my first son's born. It's no longer about impressing my father. It's about how far can I actually go now. And I knew I was very talented when it came to the boxing brain of things, I was not so talented on the athletic perspective side of things. I wasn't a great athlete. I couldn't, I was never, I could never sprint 100 metres really quick. I could never lift many heavy weights. But my boxing brain was really good because I studied it for that many hours and hours and hours on end. I would study boxers. I would study how they moved. I would study what made them twitch. I would study what made them do certain things that they'd done. I would study what would happen when they got hit, when they got knocked down. All these things I knew, like, and I don't know where they are in my brain. Like, they're just, they're there. And I can't, because I can't remember anything else. I can't remember things I'd done yesterday. Like, I, honest to God, like, I, I remember my kids' names, my wife, obviously, <laughs> me, me close family and friends, but the, most of it just goes in and out. It doesn't stay. The boxing stuck. I used to think of myself when I was in school as being thick. I wasn't very bright in school. And I said this to my friend. Now, bear in mind, this same friend got expelled from school the same time as me. He's now a professor in Leeds University. He'll probably kick off now. He's probably moved from Leeds and been bought for somewhere else. But he was, he was the head professor in Leeds University last time I checked. And I just thought me and him were destined for a life of just up to no good. But he was really bright. I thought he was thick because I thought I was thick. And it's only, he meets a girl. The girl ended up becoming a mathematician. She was really intelligent. He went back to school when he met this girl and got educated. And, and now he's, he's, he's doing his, he's done his, whatever makes him a professor, that's what he's going to be. He's, he's done that. I remember sitting with him saying, I remember saying to him about seven or eight years ago, I was still fighting. And I said, listen, I'm not bright, I'm thick. He said, you're not thick. He said, do you want me to prove to you why you're not thick? And I said, if you can prove to me you're not, I'm not thick. I said, there's a couple of quid in this here for you. That's <laughs> for a bet. And, and I've always believed it. And I thought, and he described it and he was very simply said to me, you know so much about boxing. And he asked me questions, this, this, this about, and I had the answers to all of it. He said, do you know if you gave any subject in the world as much time as you give boxing, you would be as clever at that as you are at boxing. Mm. And I thought, 
oh, once again, like the bulb went off in my head and I thought, I'm actually not that thick. I'm, I'm, I'm actually, I'm half, I'm half bright because if I can, if I can transfer it to boxing and all the things that I know and like, I can just, I can break a fight down. I can literally, I can look at an opponent, I can watch him for five minutes and I can tell you exactly how to beat him. I'm not telling you that I can do it because I can't. Otherwise I'd be Floyd Mayweather times 10. But what I can tell you is how to beat him and the way to go about beating him. And that is really difficult to do. And the reason I can do that is because I've given so many years of my life to it. But as a kid growing up, you don't believe you've got... When you're thrown out of school and then you come home and you've got nothing going for you, not, you know, and, and everyone just assumes you're thick, or you've been the last out of school because you're no good, you, you, you know, you, you're not very bright. And you, and you become accustomed, and so many people tell you that, that you just believe it. And a part of you still does believe it. Even though I've achieved all the things I've achieved, and I keep saying to you, it doesn't mean I'm anything special. I've just someone who believed and sacrificed and dedicated everything I possibly could to achieve them goals. Uh, and that's why I sit here today in the position I'm in. Most people in their lives never dedicate the amount of time and thought and effort into anything that you've done in your life. So mm -hmm. often there's not much more room, is there? I mean, to, you know, and it is a revelation when, I mean, that's for me is interesting is once you're, you decided to retire, was that a real struggle for you as to what you're going to replace it with? Because you said it left a massive um, oh, a hole huge in your life. I didn't know what to do. The first of all, I knew I was going to retire walking to the ring. I knew my body was was giving in on me, and that was really hard to contend with. I think mental exhaustion, not so much physical exhaustion, was was to blame. But it's so sad when it does come to an end because, as fighters, you're not prepared. I've been punching people in the face for twenty years and. I wake up on Sunday morning, it's over. And that's so hard to contend with. And with the point of where it was in my life, we were probably still grieving for my brother-in-law who we lost. And that was really hard because for so long, the last two fights in my career, we lost my brother in the August uh, of 2017. And when he dies, everything just changes then. Not, I was so selfish all my career, all my life. I've been really selfish. Everything was about boxing. No one, nothing else mattered. Nothing. So even though I've got four kids and a lovely wife, boxing came first. And it's 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 embarrassing to say that now when I look back, but it just did. I said before I had this dream long before they were here. So becoming world champion, I'd literally fulfilled all my dreams and all my goals. And then I've got three kids at this stage, and everything's going great. But then I've got to carry on fighting to financially secure them three kids and the wife. Because if so, if I die or something happens to me, I've got to know that they're okay financially, they're looked after and they're great. Uh, I, I secure that and in a David Hay fight. I have a David Hay another fight. I'm basically retired. Uh, but then I get married uh, after being with her for 20 years, just getting to know her still. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and we get married and then I'm basically retired and then this crazy Ukrainian guy called Alexander Usyk starts shouting my name all over the TV because I'm a big name now. Uh, I end up having one more fight and come basically coming out of retirement to fight him, knowing that I'm, I'm well done. Fighters are the best liars in the world. We lie to ourselves. We tell ourselves we can do it, we can get in shape. So I do, I get in great shape. I, I fight him, I lose. And I'm happy with that loss because I can put my head on the pillow and know I fought the best fighter there's ever been in my weight division. And, and I gave him a run for his money for as long as it lasted. But 
when that fight's over, there's a big void in your life, and I'm trying you're trying to fill it, and it's very very difficult to to contend with. Uh, I did have a plan, and my plan was to manage my property portfolio to to grow business for the kids, and but nothing fills the void of, of boxing. Uh, I've just done this every day. When I wake up, it's the first thing I thought about. When I go to bed, it was the last thing I thought about. I can't give you the answer to how I got through it. All as I could say to you is it was very, very hard. Uh, and and no one cares because everyone's so busy with their own lives. Everyone's got things going on. And, and, I say, and I've got kids I've got to think about, a wife got to think about. But in the back of your mind, you think, should have, would have, could have. What would kill me more is if I look back at my career and thought, should have done that, could have done this. I had done absolutely everything, so I have no regrets whatsoever. I wouldn't change a single thing. The only thing I would change is, is I'd reflect more and give more time to my kids and my wife in the time. So I do have, they, they are regrets, I suppose I have, but you learn to live with them. I do miss it, and every single day I still think about punching people in the face. <laughs> Just got to not do it when I'm in the car. <laughs> or get out the car. It's a big shift, isn't it, in your identity? So one one day you're a boxer, you see yourself as this boxer, and the next day you're not that anymore. So what? How do you see yourself now? The worst golfer on the planet who's trying to get better. <laughs> <laughs> how do I see myself now? Just as the kid's dad, I'm trying to be the best husband I can be. I have to feel like I'm winning at something. I just don't see the point in, in going through life and I'm not challenging for something. So right now, it's to be the best dad I can be. It's to be a better husband uh, and it's to be a better golfer. I'm someone who never settles. I, I, I just I just think the minute I settle in life is the minute that I'm going to start failing or the minute things will start falling around, falling apart around me. I just know that I've been super dedicated and it's paid off. I, I, I do understand I've worked very hard. Uh, what I've done isn't easy. What I've achieved was not easy. It, it, it was a mountain. And if you told me I was going to do all these things before I'd done them, I'd have said, you're absolutely nuts. But I have done them and it's been through sacrifice, dedication, hard work. I've had a crazy journey, but I'm very, very grateful for, for it. In this book, the thing that made me laugh so much is, I think it's a section on them, like tiny steps, small steps. And what you said is that in your life, obviously a lot of the stuff that you've done has been the boring stuff. It's been yeah. the grit, it's the rep repetition. And um, you talk about that in the book and you said, if you want to be a barrister, you can't stand up in court in your big, daft effing wig yeah <laughs> you've not done all the qualifications and all the stuff and it's all the stuff behind the scene isn't it so what, is... it's what people don't see yeah so it's crazy because people look at me as, as a boxer or people look at me as a former fighter and i'll be honest loosely they just look at he's a lunatic he's a maniac but they don't see the years of sacrifice and dedication that i've put forward and put first people just see the destination no one sees the journey and what was interesting in, in you talking about, so your podcast is Tony Bellew is, is angry. angry. Which I'm not. Well, I was going to say, seen, I don't you think are. you are very angry. Well, I mean, it's like there's a lot of focus on, on anger and, and your um, how you identify yourself and then how you see other people as identifying. Because what I see in you 
since we walked through this door is so much love, like so much kindness and, and humility and how much you love your family. And the one thing that really struck me in, in the book was when you said that um, at Goodison Park, normally you know, your kids would never be around yeah. and you, you walked out around the hospitality suites to, and you were full of anger, obviously. That's yeah. how you approach a fight. And Corey was there and you didn't expect that. Yeah. And that that got to me as a parent. I mean, mm. because you were Tony Bellew, the fighter, that, and he almost didn't recognise you as you were no. in that minute because of all of that anger that he could see. So, mm. But that's because you're so full of love yeah, it makes me feel like crying now thinking about it. <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing his little face, yeah. I don't believe he shouldn't have been there in hindsight. I mean, thankfully it worked out and my son can say I was there the night my dad won a world title, but yeah, it broke my heart. Mm. I was going on that ground every other Saturday since I was a child. My season ticket was in the Gladys Street end, I loved it. So when my dream comes true and I'm going to fight for my world title there, I just, I, I needed one of my kids to be there, but none of my kids had ever been to me fights before and as i said before when i'm in that environment when i'm put into that place i'm horrible i'm i'm horrible i'm ruthless i'm vicious i'm nasty i'm all the horrible things i wouldn't say that i've experienced as a kid because that's not fair i've had a good childhood i don't want to portray to people i've had this bad childhood and i was a beaten kid or stuff like that and just not when you go out the four walls of where i'm from you better be on guard because if you're not people will take advantage of you and you better be able to fight, because if you can't fight, you better be able to tell a joke, because either one of them is going to get you out of trouble. If you can fight, it's going to get you out of trouble. You better be able to make them laugh, because if you can't make them laugh and you can't have a fight, you're just going to be a victim. And that's just how you grow up. That, and, and I don't think that's harsh. Like People go on to me and say, it wasn't that bad as a kid growing up. Well, how many fights did you have as a kid growing up, and how many fights did you have to defend? And especially having a younger brother who, who was black and gay, which was just impossible in Waverty and Toxted growing up. Being black and being gay did not go down well, especially gay. I mean, there was a 50-50 majority if you were black or white, where I'm from, a very mixed race orientated area. But being gay was difficult, especially at the age of 11 and 12. And I'm two or three years older, 15, 14, 15, 16. Such a so it's no coincidence why I'm a fighter and why I'm horrible. It's the amount of hidings I would have to give out. I fought with grown men as a kid, and it didn't. It doesn't frighten me. It doesn't intimidate me. So that's the I, I, as as I was fighting, I would always have that emotion and that. I'm gonna say anger. I'm not angry, but that I would always carry them emotions with me. But then the minute I'm at home and I see the kids, I'm just not that. I'm just I'm nothing like that. Like that person's alien to me. Yeah. I'm just I'm soft. I'm the more like me miss it does me miss a Zedin. I'm so laid back. Like the kids will be having full blown murder in the house now. I'll just sit there and it can just go on. My kids wrestle and fight so and the mum's screaming, I'm just leave them to it. Just let them just it's the only way they'll learn. Let them do what they're doing. And she's like, Why doesn't it bother you? And she's screaming and shouting. It just doesn't bother me. So yeah, I'm just so relaxed at home. But as I said, referring back to the situation with Corey, that was heartbreaking because he shouldn't have been there and he should never see the look in my face that I've got when I'm going to hurt someone. Because when you're in professional boxing, it's all well and good dressing it up as a sport and it's glorious and it's, it's glamorous and it, there's lights, there's cameras, there's action, there's millions of pounds at stake, there's world title belts. Yeah, all them things I've said are there, but ultimately I'm trying to render someone unconscious. And sometimes people don't make it home. And I go into a ring knowing that this fella's trying to take away everything I've worked for. And he can't. I'm willing to die 
in a boxing ring to, to win what I possibly can. And that's always the mentality that I went into a boxing ring with. You're going to have to kill me to stop me. Mm-hmm. Every time I got knocked down, I got back up. I've never been knocked clean out and kept on the floor asleep. And every single fight I've ever had, I say, I do get up and I try and fight on. I'm just very fortunate at times in my career and life. I've been saved by referees on two occasions. They literally saved me life because if they let me carry on fighting, I'd have carried on fighting. So yeah, for Corey to see me in that environment, it broke me heart. And I, st- I still kind of regret it to this day because he's, he's seen me like that. He, he's never seen me like that. I mean, he's probably seen me lose my temper twice in his life. Once was in a car, someone threatened us or, or, or whatever happened in the car. And the other time, I think he battered his brother too much and I, I got his PlayStation and smashed it off the wall. And that was the biggest fright he's ever had in his life. I smashed his PlayStation to smithereens. I think I did that with Alex. <laughs> so that's the idea, the two angriest occasions he's ever seen in his life. Mm. But that was a different anger than what he's seen at Goodison yeah. Park that night. Mm. He's seen a horrible, vicious killer the night he's seen at Goodison Park. And that's just, and that was me for, for 20 years. And, that, and that's so hard to switch off on and off. So I would come home from training, from the gym, and I would I, I would be lying if I said I'd switch that off straight away. It doesn't. I would come home from the gym at times and they'd be like, Dad, can we go to the yellow submarine? That's some place centre there. The kids go and I'd be like, no, I'm tired. I'm busy. Dad, I've got me parents even. I'm not interested, kid. I'm t- I've, got, I've got work. Well, my wife, we, can we go in here? Such, such, we go for the meals and I know you take them, go. You need a holiday sound. Take the kids on holiday. I was so selfish and so driven. So for my son to see that side of me, yeah, I do have regrets. But on the plus side, I don't think it's scarred him because he doesn't talk about the time seeing me. He just he just says, you turn your back on me, Dad, and walked away from me. Uh, and that's what I've done. I could have some back now. I couldn't look at him. He's, he's, he's cute. He's lovely. He looks like his mum. So, yeah, seeing him was heartbreaking, but very difficult. But thankfully, I got myself together and my mind together just in time for the job to be really done. I've heard you say that you'd never had any nerves before a fight. Did you ever experience fear in a fight? No. I did. I've had nerves for two fights in my life. Goodison Park and my first ever amateur fight. I was petrified walking to the ring at Goodison Park. Petrified. Scared. Petrified of losing. Petrified of shame. When I said to you before, I've been telling people at 15 I was going to fight for a world title at Goodison Park. You've got to remember, it's now 18 years later and it's happening in front of my eyes. It, it's all come true. It, it's now or never. It's the dream belt that I want. And it's at Goodison Park. I can't put into words how nervous I was and how scared I was. Because if I lose this fight, I'm never coming back to Goodison Park again, Dan. I would never have been seen by any Evertonians, by <laughs> any Evan fans. I would never have come to Finch Farm again. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I, I just would have disappeared genuinely because of the shame I already knew I'd do whatever it'd take to win like I've told you before I was willing to, to die in a boxing ring but that night I remember looking at the Gladys Street thinking to myself I can't believe this is happening and thinking right, lad you've got to do, do come good here because if you lose this one you are finished <laughs> uh, thankfully when the bell goes everything stops the world just stops. Everything goes so slow. I look at him and everything that I've studied about him, everything that I've watched and learned, and 
it's happening in front of my eyes. So he's doing the things that I've, I've studied him so much. I've studied how his feet move. I've studied what he does when he's confident. I've studied what he does when he's not so confident. I've studied when he's hurt. I've studied when he's anxious. I've studied when every possible conclusion, I've studied him and I'm, I'm just watching his moves. I'm watching how he breathes, everything. And everything's going so well until then the first round he breaks my nose. He snaps my nose in half and drops me. And then that's when I'd say that bad. Like, I should say, and what everyone wants is the panic sets in. The panic didn't really. I just thought you better get up, you stupid muppets. You were walking this round. Everything was going so well, and you've just as your nose broken, you're on the floor, and people go, "How oh, do you know your nose is being broke?" Because you literally you feel it and hear it snap, and the different type of blood, a different type of blood comes out. You'll know, Dan. You've seen broken nose before. The blood is a lot darker when your nose breaks been broken a number of times so you can you can't see everyone goes you got a good nose for a fighter haven't you well if you push down on one side it's got a big huge lump on one side <laughs> this side's perfectly straight it's because it's so little it hides it so well <laughs> so yeah when your nose gets broken that first round uh i'm just going back the corner thinking i've just got to get this done and then i'm not gonna lie i don't even remember there being a second round the next thing I remember is just hitting him with the left hook and putting him unconscious. But then once again, as I say, I'm an animal that you'll revert back to type. I'll survive just with what I know. And that's how I got through the second round. It just, you figure it out and you come through it, thankfully. But fear, it's just, I don't know the words to explain that night. Fear and... I, I, I experienced every emotion you possibly could that night from from the thoughts of losing to being close to losing by nearly getting knocked out to to climbing up off the canvas then to winning and then to coming home and just thinking I've achieved all my dreams everything I set out to do I've been British, Commonwealth, European and world champion I've done the four things I set out in life to do and then thinking on that Monday morning I've done it. And then I remember her saying to me, don't you think you should stop now? I said, if girl, if only you knew. If, I can't stop now because we're so far away from final. Yes, I've achieved all my dreams and all my goals, but that's that's not what you need because when the mortgage man comes round to pay the mortgage or when the gas man comes round or the lucky man comes round and we're going to walk to the front and go, hey mate, I'm WBC champion, you know. <laughs> so I, can't, I can't pay my council tax, but I'm, I'm WBC champion. It's just going, oh, don't, don't care, yeah. lad. Pay us, we want our money or we're going to get you out. So she soon understood. My wife's never had to deal with any of the finances or stuff like that for, for the family. She's dealt with me children. She's raised me four lovely boys uh, and she's kept this household going. She's kept me going. Without it, I couldn't have done a single thing. Uh, so yeah, it, it, when I told her that, listen, we've got a mortgage for X and X Y Z on this house after I've become world champion, she was like, oh, "Okay, uh, and how do we do that?" And I was like, "I've got to carry on fighting." <laughs> I said, "Because that's what's going to make it work." And Dan knows when I first come to Finch Farm, I was in a, I was in a Peugeot four oh seven, on a. 06 plate or a 56 plate that had done 168,000 miles on the clock. <laughs> I used to pull up next to Lamborghinis, <laughs> Bentleys, Rolls Royces, the flashiest BMWs and Range Rovers you could see. And these boys must have just been thinking, he is absolutely nuts. He comes in, he sits in an ice bath for 15 minutes, but I'm only supposed to sit in it for five. 
he drives a Peugeot and he gets punched in the face. <laughs> he actually wanted, <laughs> Phil Neville tried to put it together, he wanted to buy me a car or sponsor me a car. <laughs> and Bill O said, you can't do that. Bill O's told me this a few years back. He said, never wanted to get you a sponsor to get you a car, a decent car. I have got a decent car. I, oh, I had a decent car, it was the Peugeot 407. <laughs> uh, and he laughed. But Bill O's knew the person I was. I was so proud. I would never have accepted that. He said to me, that's what he wanted to do. I said, well, I'm, I'm happy you said no, because I wouldn't have accepted it and I would have kicked off. I probably wouldn't, wouldn't have come back. I'd have called them all toss pots <laughs> and walked out the dressing room. But uh, yeah, that's you spoke, just the way. You spoke about in the, when the bell goes, that yeah. time kind of slows and, and you're yeah. totally present. A lot of the best athletes recognize that. It's called flow state. Ah, okay. Have you experienced that all the time when you've yes, been boxing? lots of fights. Some fights I haven't. Some fights I've come home and not even remembered being there. So I've had fights and the one that I drew with Isaac Chalemba, I don't remember anything from the fight after getting in the car to go to the arena. I don't remember anything. I, I just remember waking up the next day. Uh, the Maccabi fight, I don't remember the second round. I just remember knocking him out. And then I've had other times where, what's that word you've just said? Flow state. Flow state, I've had that a number of times. Fights have slowed down. Uh, yeah, the David Hay fight was one of them. Everything he done was slow motion. I could see every single thing he was doing in the rematch. It was so slow, I could slip. I remember my first ever title fight, I fought a guy called the Tolly Moore. I was 12 and 0, he was 10 and 0 in fights. And it was uh, for the Commonwealth title fight. And he come out and he thrown a jab at me. And the jab went past and I thought, is he, must, is he taking the mickey? Mm. He's doing a jab and I watched it go past and I just slipped. I watched it go past that way and I thought, he's taking the piss. I, I thought, he's got to be taking the mickey. <laughs> he, he can't be there. I had that card, that can't happen. <laughs> he's thrown another jab and I watched, I just slipped. <laughs> and I'd done it again and I thought, oh, forget this. I touched another jab and just went bang, leaned over straight right hand on his chin. He just, he fell down. <laughs> And I thought, is this what happens at all title fights? <laughs> <laughs> he was the worst opponent I ever faced. And I was hoping every fight that I ever fought since was going to be a totally more. Unfortunately, they weren't. They got better and faster. But uh, So I've had, it, I've had it to that extreme where it was so slow. I was doing this and thinking, wow, really? It was like I was Neo in the Matrix. Yeah. <laughs> but then obviously when you face David Day in the second fight, it was nowhere near like that. It was just... I anticipated everything he was doing and boom, I could slip slide. I didn't have a mark on my face in the second fight. My performance that day was on another level. Like in that rematch and I had so much going on in my personal life. Uh, I'd not long lost Ashley. Like I said, I don't use the word depression, but th that's the closest I've come to it. For, for, for 12 weeks, I would cry myself to sleep. Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday. I'd cry myself to sleep in the hotel in Sheffield on my own. Yeah, and that's that's very hard for a man like me to say something like that. But yeah, that's what I'd do. And I couldn't come home. I'd be crying on the Wednesday night, but I couldn't because I'd come home to my wife. And and so she'd be crying, so I'd just hold her. So that went on for months and months. And that was the most difficult period of my life. But then when I get, once again, as selfish as I am, I should never have went to camp. I shouldn't have fought again, to be fair. But I did. Going to camp for, was my getaway. And then when I got in the ring... With all what had gone on in my family, we'd been in courtrooms, we'd been to find out how Ashley died and no one could grieve properly and we, we still don't know to this day is, is how he's died. 
I got in the ring and performed the fight of my life because every time I put boxing gloves on in that period of my life, it was the only time I could escape. And I don't know whether that's why I performed the way I did or whether how perfect it was or whether it was down to Ashley. Could have been down to him. I wouldn't know. I'm not someone who believes in God or Jesus or any of that stuff. I mean, looking around this room, it looks like a church, but honest <laughs> to God, I don't believe in much in a church or a medieval room. <laughs> uh, but I, I don't know why. I had like a nice part of me, I'd like to think it was him throwing the punches for me, but I don't know. But that night I was on fire, I was perfect. And then I had actually in my mind that I, say, I just went with head to the fight to honour my word to David, because I gave him my word, I'd give him a rematch. So, so yeah, them moments do occur. I don't know how or where they come from, and I'm not sure if you had an answer from an athlete of why, I don't know. Um, I don't think they have the answer, but I think it's because they're they're absolutely focused. You know, their attention has to be absolutely in the moment, otherwise mm. you get punched in the face. It was that day. Me intent, me, me, all my focus and goal was on beating him. I also had massive pressure on me because after the first fight, everyone was saying, "Oh, you only beat him because he had one leg because he snapped his Achilles tendon in the fifth, in the sixth round of the first fight." So everyone was like, "Oh, you're a fluke. You're this. You're not that good. You." he's the great David Hay and you could never beat him when he's fully fit and we go into the rematch and he's fully fit and he's perfect and then I absolutely smashed the granny out of him. <laughs> yeah, even faster than the first fight. So, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. It works in strange ways, boxing and people's mindset. But for in that fight, I could never have been in a more difficult place mentally. But then I perform on my skin. Really hard part of my life there. A lot of men and a lot of athletes especially find it difficult to speak about depression, anxiety and, mm. you know, admitting vulnerable things like that. Yeah. Have you got any advice for them? Uh, I'd like to sit here and say, oh, well, talk to someone. But I never did, so <laughs> I'd be, I don't want to lie on, on camera saying that. But if I could give advice to someone, I would say, of course, talk to you. A problem shared is a problem halved. I don't know. I think men fail to to talk because they don't want to feel inadequate. They don't want to open themselves up and feel vulnerable. And that never bothered me. I mean, if me saying certain things shows that I'm weak or, or like I had no problem, sometimes I'll cry. What big? What's the big deal? I mean, am I not supposed to? Or, or am I supposed to? I don't know. It wouldn't bother me if it, if it did or don't. Uh, so, yeah, I don't know. I think men... Oh, we have we carry this macho thing image now. I didn't have this macho big image as a as a fighter. I mean, people think I did, and they portray that I do. Like, they, like I'm portrayed as angry. The BBC portray me. I swear to God, as the angriest man in the world. And then when people meet me, they go, "Can't believe it!" You know, like, I was expecting you to be nuts. <laughs> and I was like, "What was you expecting? The Hulk?" <laughs> like, I'm gonna take my clothes off and got and turn into a green. <laughs> Muscle man. I mean, I wish I had the muscles, but <laughs> it's just men have this thing with being macho and stuff like that. I just, I just don't get it. Yeah, it's very, very difficult for men to open up and talk about things like that. I'd, I'd like to bring women into it, but I've been with a woman for twenty years and I barely know her. So there's no point in talking about women. They're, in my mind, they're a completely different species, <laughs> and, I, and I can't figure them out whatsoever. So I think the best thing to do is just keep them happy. And life is easier. <laughs> <laughs> what I was going to ask you is that in your book, towards the end of the book, there's a section, it says, I love it, you've had your time, lad. 
about new challenges and you tell your readers to find out who you are again. So you've had to find out who you are. So who are you and how would you help other people if they got to go through a major transition in their life to find that balance of that peace? Uh, who am I? The most important thing in the world, I'm as a dad. A dad of four kids. That's exactly who I am. Uh, how would I speak to someone about dealing with the transition in their life? Identify what you want to do and what you want to be, first and foremost. After you've identified that, look at ways to navigate yourself to where you want to get to and what you want to be. But you first of all, you have to either identify your flaws, identify your weaknesses, accept them. But just make sure you've identified them because they're not going to go away on their own. You've got to that. You've got to see your weaknesses, get them in front of you, and then just be honest with yourself. Uh, as I said, the one person in the world you can't lie to is yourself. I'm navigating my way through that all the time, as I've said. I said I said my most important goal right now is being a good father and being the best husband that I can be. I'm far from a perfect parents. I'm, I'm the last thing in the world from it, but I'm trying. I'm, I'm, I'm having a go at it. I suppose it's things that I've seen failed in front of me. One of my strengths is I learn from other people's mistakes rather than make them my own. I'm not scared to ask people for advice. I'm not scared to ask people for help. And you've got to be willing to ask questions and speak to people. I think that's a massive important thing, especially for men. Men like to believe they know it all. <laughs> I don't know bleeding thing. <laughs> uh, yeah. With what we started on this whole thing with the story of the lobster and how the lobster, the lobster's brain works. I get it. I get that because he's lost and he feels inadequate. But then I think the way you guys explained it is it's his offspring that come after him, it affects them as well, is that right? Yeah. Because he feels inadequate, they're going to feel inadequate as well. Yeah. So the king remains the king forever. And the uh, king's there's always a new, there's always a new. There's always a new king, but yeah. then does he set a precedent for this whole family? So if he's the king and only he can feel like the king, he passes that, I'd say kingship on, that royalty on. Yeah. And the, But at some point he has to lose. Or die. And then what happens? There'll be a fight, won't there? And then the next top lobster will step up. And when you were saying that, it made me think about kind of where we did start today, which was, you know, you being in this big house in this posh area and your dad saying, this is where the rich people live. Yeah. And that's why I suppose I agree to with my wife. Because I, I, I didn't ever feel like I'd belong in a place like this. And then a part of me says to myself, why don't I? Uh, and I'll show you. So I turn <laughs> up here with my music pumping, my rap music, <laughs> and I have my gold chain on, <laughs> and I have a nice watch, and my music is so loud that it rocks the car, and my wife kicks off every time she hears me before I'm coming. But it's, I suppose, whether it's my culture, whether it's who I am or where I'm from, I'm here now, and I'm not going anywhere. So when my nan, who was 96 the other day, said to me, I need to come up to your house, your mum said you live in a mansion. Yeah. <laughs> I, said I, I said I don't live in a mansion, now. I've just got to bring it up here. When you hear people describing silly things like that, it just makes you laugh. <laughs> like I said before, what I've done doesn't define who I am. Me living in this house or living in the house that my first child was born in, in Gidlow Road, south in Old Swan, makes no difference whatsoever. I'm the exact same person then as I am now. I'm no Well, I like to think I'm no different. What I am is, I'm a whole lot wiser. 
to what people want and what people need and also a lot wiser to myself to actually what I do need these days. I don't need much to exist. I don't need much at all. I just need me set of golf clubs, me four kids, me wife, and enough food to eat and enough water to drink. And the jobs are good. I don't really need much else. Most people are actually scared of achieving what they possibly can. They're scared and they don't they don't pursue it. I can't get my head around why people are like that. That that's something that I can't get out of my mind. It's right in front of you. Go and get it, it's yours. But to to be willing to get what you want in life, you've got to be willing to sacrifice who you are for what you will become. And not many were willing to do that. I definitely was. So if there's any difference between me and the average regular guy, it's that I was willing to sacrifice who I was for who I wanted to become. And that's thankfully what got me there. Tony, it's a great place to end. It's been a huge honor to be here and I've learned so much from this conversation. I'm sure our listeners will, there's so many lessons that you've, that you've given us today. And hopefully the next time we'll meet, it'll be at Cambridge where you're going to speak to the union and we'll get Theo involved. No, I'll meet Theo anytime. I'll say hello to him. If he's your boy, he's going to be bright. But uh, yeah, I mean, I just I don't know why. I'm still getting pestered and harassed to do certain things. But like I say, I'm, I've got my hands full enough and my weapons down gloves up. Uh, and that is one of the driving forces that's pushing me at the minute, getting these kids into full-time employment. I'm not going to stop till I get a 1,000 kids into full-time employment. Uh, we've closed in on 100 now. So we're one-tenth of the way there, and we've just got to keep going. There's a way for every child out there, and there's a way for every single adult out there as well. Just how much do you want to achieve what your, what your goal is? What's your goal? Identify it and plot out a plan on how to achieve it, and I promise you, you can do it. People will surprise themselves at what they're capable of. I've definitely surprised myself. I never, in my wildest dreams, thought I was capable of doing some of the things I've done. But through sacrifice perseverance and dedication I got there and thankfully it worked out hopefully now I can learn from you up here <laughs> that's, the that's the last place I need Golf. to if you can if you can give me the woosah when I hit a bad shot Dan I, I've absolutely cracked it but yeah and not want to break my club over my back thank you thank you for having me here uh, too Tony and absolute um, pleasure Anthony pleasure and, um, don't worry it doesn't matter it's Tony Anthony <laughs> I'm known to the world as Tony so it makes no odds so don't worry uh, but yeah Tony's long 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 gone I haven't punched someone in the face for years no but you said earlier that you're not changing lives and it's really clear that you are and particularly the oh, work that you're doing you. now trying. and it's amazing so thank thanks you. for that thank you very thank very you. much appreciate it So I was struck how humble Tony really is. He's just so humble. And that point he made about his friend who went on to study at university and then he's got a further education, that Tony just couldn't see himself with the same intellectual capacity as his friend and didn't compute the fact that if somebody puts so much focus and work and training and, and education around anything like he's done with boxing, you get that in another sphere he still compares himself as not being as intellectually capable as his, as his friend because he's done boxing rather than gone into yeah. education. Yeah, yeah, and I think that was his own experience of imposter syndrome and we all experience that in different ways. 
but he's like in terms of the way he's used his brain he's done things intuitively that i think neuroscience is now catching up with and one of them is to create an alter ego so when he boxes he's tony bellew and he has to be this crazy hard tough man to box and get through it but when he's at home his wife knows him as anthony and we met anthony and he's a big softy but he knew intuitively that you can you can change your brain by taking on a different persona and it actually changes your physiology and attitude and mentality and a lot surprisingly a lot of the the top stars around the world use this i read about beyonce having her own stage presence because she felt like she couldn't do certain moves and certain dances so she had to when she put her stilettos on um she changed into this other character and tony had done that intuitively from a young age yeah and when he talks about before the fight his son arrived unexpectedly and his son was terrified by how his dad looked because he'd never seen him as as tony bellew in that moment mm. and that broke Tony's heart, it broke Anthony's heart, didn't yeah. it? Because yeah. those two lives, he did never ever put those two lives together. So he never showed yeah. that persona at home. Yeah, because he used to go away, didn't he, for like 12 weeks onto the camp. And then he would start cultivating this Tony character. And by the end of the 12 weeks, it was fully embedded and he'd lost all sense of Anthony. Yeah. The, um, the other big lesson, I think, from Tony is the power of manifestation. So from a young age, he, well, he said, I think when he was 15 at school, he was a little fat kid and he would go around telling everyone that he would be the world champion. And, you know, a lot of people have ideas like that when they're young, but it's the ones who persist and can stick with it and really listen to the people who laugh at them and say there's no chance, but ignore them because they've got this burning desire to create something special. And if you have this desire and this vision of what you really want in life and you stick to it consistently, then it will happen. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Lobster Brain. The next episode will be with entrepreneur and writer Mo Gaudat. Mo is Chief Business Officer for Google X, the innovation lab that works on things like self-driving cars and robots. Now, Mo's on a mission to help one billion people become happy. You can hear that episode on December the 1st. Please remember to rate, review and follow this podcast so you'll never miss an episode.